2: I'm Aaron Sagers and this is Talking Strange. There's spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. I'm your host, journalist, researcher of weird things, occasional TV host, Aaron Sagers. You can also catch me on 28 Days Haunted on Netflix and Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and the Max streaming service. And today, this episode, we are talking about the so called Ken Ross incident of November 23rd, 1953 which took place above the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And on its 70th anniversary, this this story remains one of the more notable incidents of a missing craft, a missing Air Force jet, and it is a notable incident associated with UFO and UAP activity. And to talk about this significant disappearance, this incident and its legacy— I have invited a couple of trusted colleagues and friends from Michigan. So I'm going to go ahead and bring them in. First off, let me introduce this gentleman. John E. Elteny. is a well-recognized and highly sought-after investigator of UFO, paranormal, and occult phenomena. And he has been actively involved in the field of animalistic. I can never say it out loud. Animalistic. animalistic, that's, animalistic that's good enough.
3: <laughs> and paranormal
2: research. It's one of those words that I i know it on the page, and yet saying it out loud, its uh, it always trips me up. And paranormal research for over three decades and over the past 30 years he has given more than uh a, a lectures to more than 100,000 people and those are titled weird lectures he's also been a consultant for numerous companies including NBC, AE, Fox, Sci-Fi, Discovery and History Channel and most recently has been seen on kindred spirits also bringing in Brad Blair author, adventurer, podcast host and lifelong paranormal enthusiast Brad has spent decades researching the strange and the unknown, and his passion for the paranormal has taken him across the United States and around the globe to some of the most haunted and mysterious locations known to the world. But for this conversation, he is co-author of the books, *Supernatural Haunts and Great Lakes, Monsters and Mysteries. And he resides in Michigan's Upper Peninsula with his wife and son, where he operates several tourism-related businesses, co-hosts the Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, and is the owner-promoter of the Michigan Paranormal Convention. And then we also have Bill Konkoleski, who has been the state director of the Michigan chapter of the Mutual UFO Network since 2004, and his cases have been featured on shows such as Unsolved Mysteries. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. I'm I'm really excited to talk about this case as we are on the cusp of its 70th anniversary. So to kick things off, I'm going to go ahead and in my research, I've discovered that John Tenney filed, I believe, a FOIA request in 1999. Is that accurate, John?
3: about the Ken Ross incident? I think my first FOIA request was in 95, but it didn't get fulfilled until 99.
2: Okay, so with that that uh, reputation, I'm gonna ask you, if do you feel comfortable kind of briefly summarizing these events that took place in 1953, and then we'll get into some questions from there.
3: I will do a very brief summary. Uh, November 23rd, 1953, Uh, A UFO, an unidentified object, is picked up on radar at Kinross Air Force Base in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. A jet is scrambled to go and intercept that UFO, unidentified object, to see what it is. The radar operators back at Kinross watch the two objects, the plane and the unidentified object, close in on each other. Uh, They seem to overlap and merge, then they both vanish. Fearing there has been a mid-air collision, more jets are scrambled, they go into the air, they find no wreckage, no flotilla on the water, Um, the crew is never recovered, the plane is never recovered, the plane seems to have vanished along with the unidentified object and that's the very short of it
2: <laughs> right and in this plane the f-89c scorpion i believe is felix eugene monclaw who's the expert pilot who's age 27 and radar operator robert l wilson who went missing and never to be seen or heard from again and um and this was over brad this was over restricted air airspace over lake superior is that correct
1: Yes, it was, the, the object was coming very near the Sioux Locks, which from World War II on through the Cold War, that, that was a, a majorly restricted area. There was an Air Force base, that the base was there to defend the Sioux Locks that the jet left from. Brad,
2: just to add a little bit more detail there, for the uninitiated that might be out there, just... Kind of explain what the Sioux Locks are and the importance that they had in order to justify having this uh, Kenross Air Force Base so close nearby.
1: Sure. Yeah, the the Sioux Lock shipping canal located in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, is the connection between Lake Superior and the Lower Great Lakes. So you've got millions of tons of mainly iron ore coming through during the summer months. They close down in the winter for a while due to weather. But this fuels the American steel mill You know, this is the American steel industry. If you would bomb those locks, and this was the worry back during the days of World War II and during the Cold War, you could effectively cripple the U.S. steel industry, which, you know, as an effect from that, you'd also be wiping out the auto industry and American manufacturing as we know it. So back then, there wasn't as much of a global economy, and it was – a major concern of the U.S. government and the U.S. military to protect this area.
2: And we're right there on the Canadian border as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill, what were you going to add to that?
0: Oh, sure. In particular, the Korean War had just ended a couple months earlier. And so I'm sure when they saw something there, that's exact, when they saw on their radar an item, an object hovering over the Sioux locks, that that was exactly the type of thing that they were I'm worried about the entirety of the war and now suddenly the war is over the base is still fully functioning they see this potential threat when they scramble the jet the object flies out over lake superior at a speed of about 500 miles an hour which is not a record at that time but still much faster than anything should be in that airspace at this time especially unidentified
2: in my understanding that this F-89 Scorpion that was scrambled, it was in pursuit for about 30 minutes after this thing. And and as you said, uh, approximately a speed of 500 miles per hour, uh, started at an altitude of 25,000 and brought down to uh, 8,000 feet. Is that correct? Can anyone speak to that?
3: It went through a range of heights and of elevations and speeds. Um, it was redirected a couple of times because the weather wasn't great at the time, which is one of the things that the researchers used to kind of explain this away. Um, but yes, it, it it was in its scrambling and given its original course, it had to change a couple of times to get it right on track. So yeah, it was anywhere from 27,000 to 8,000 feet.
2: And, and as uh felix monclaw the F 89 scorpion moves in and wilson i feel like uh felix uh, gets a lot of attention but we have to remember there was two people that went missing that day the as they're closing in it so it appears that these blips are merging is that do you think that that the scorpion was actually kind of overtaking this that it, it started falling in line with this unidentified craft does
3: anyone want to take that I i'll just go first if anybody has wants to jump in but the the difficulty is at that time the way that radar is working both on the plane and at kinross air force base is it's painting a return so as the radar goes around in a circle you're only seeing a flash of where something's at for a second then you have to wait for it to come back around to flash again so when you're looking at the two objects on the radar um you know, you can't tell when you say that they merged, that can mean that they're flying right above each other, right? One is above and one is below. Right, exactly. And so it's hard to get a gauge on, you know, so of course when they saw the two objects merge and then vanish, they're like, oh, they weren't fly. they flew into each other. Mm-hmm. And so
2: these things appear to vanish, they blip off, and no further communication and but there there was uh pretty much immediately US Air Force and Canadian Air Force did launch a search mission pretty quickly right after this, and they start scouring the area. Now, uh Bill, perhaps speak to this. There was reports of hearing a, a final final transmission from the F eighty nine.
0: Yeah, I do understand that's the case. I'm not to just uh, punt it back to um, John Tenney, but I think that um, he had more specifics on that.
2: John?
3: Yeah, so one of the things that originally when the government released the documents on Kinross, they only released like 15 to 25 pages. A lot of it was redacted and unrecovered. When we finally got all the full documents released in 99, one of the things that had taken place after the search, uh, the physical search, and rescue mission, which obviously came came up with nothing, uh, was an inquest of everybody involved in the search. And so one of the papers that we got, um, Lieutenant William Mingenbach, I'm actually gonna read right from it because I have it here with me, um, who was a radar operator at Kinross. Um, He was interviewed by the inquiry committee and they said, so about 50 minutes after Monkla was gone, were you able to recognize any words or phrases that might have been spoken by him? And he says, sir, I received transmissions that I believe he was saying something to his radar observer, who would have been Wilson. Moncla's talking to Wilson. When the transmissions came, I believe he was talking to the radar operator. Therefore, um, I immediately stopped talking because my mind was on several different subjects. I believe he said, I think we'd better... And then there were more words, which I don't remember. Now he's hearing Moncla speaking while there are planes flying around, looking for Moncla saying, we can't see the plane anywhere. The, the, it's not being painted on returns anymore. And yet they're hearing a transmission from Moncla from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I,
2: and, you know, I think it's, Again, immediately, it seemed like there was the search mission launch. The next day, ground control says that it merged with this unknown object. But then shortly after that, the U.S. Air Force rebukes that that report. And they say that it was a collision with Canadian Air Force? built.
0: Yeah, the, so there was a Canadian plane in the air. Of course, the Canadian government quickly said that that was not the case, that it was their own plane, and um pleased not to involve them on that, um, and I forget the model of the plane. It was a case something, but um, it was, yeah, it was not a fast plane. It was not anything, a plane of interest. I believe it was just a cargo plane.
2: And Brad, from your perspective, okay, if the official word, okay, despite that initial report that uh, these, these objects seem to merge this official word from the air force saying that there was this collision now, you know, speak to the fact that the great lakes, I mean, these are quite deep bodies of water and there have been ships that have gone down there never to be seen again. So is that plausible that that actually took place?
1: It's plausible, but it seems unlikely considering how fast that they began the search going out looking for a wreckage, not to find any type of flotsam in the water, not to find any oil slicks, not to find a trace. And they never did. Nothing floated up. They had never found any type of wreckage from the Scorpion fighter jet or the object it was chasing, which, you know, as you said, you know, the older days when ships would go down and go missing and never be seen again, quite often you would have life vests. You'd have something off the ship that would be marked that would wash up on shore at some point. And this isn't a calm lake. You've got weight going nonstop. You have water moving. You would think that at least something out of the wreckage of one of these crafts would have floated on shore, but it never has.
2: Despite, despite some dodgy weather that was taking place at the time.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. With the weather and, and the way things were going, Uh, You almost would have expected it more because you would have expected things to get riled up and be on top of the water and that you would have seen at least some type of an oil slick. None of this was ever reported.
2: Brad, I want to stay with you just for another moment, because there's as as opposed to other incidents, this did receive some coverage in the media there. I believe Chicago Tribune had a newspaper article about it. This did kind of get out there a little bit. But from your perspective, I I know you were not alive during this time, but you know, so having grown up in this area, what was sort of the oral history that was passed down to you from family or from people that had been there uh, back during that time?
1: There is none. And this is something that still surprises me to this day, growing up, researching paranormal, cryptid, ufology, all of that since being a kid in the area. I didn't know anything about this incident until well into high school, might've even been early college. Nobody in the area talks about it. If I walked up to 10, 20 people right now on the street and said, hey, do you remember that story about the flight that took off out of Kinross and went missing that collided with the UFO? Nobody would know what I was talking about. When I give presentations in the region and we often bring up the Kinross incident, most of the crowd has never heard of it before. So it's completely whitewashed and it's it's always baffled my mind that people in the area that it hasn't at least been ingrained as some sort of at least urban legend that this happened but there's really not much said in the area about it
2: bill and uh john do you want to add to that because is that has that been your case i mean you live both of you lived a little bit further more removed from Sault saint marie bill is it something that you had heard about from a young age or Would you agree that Uh, it was kind of whitewashed?
0: I was in my uh, mid-20s back in uh, the mid-90s that that I heard about it for the first time. Yeah, Mm
3: -hmm. John. Yeah, I I think that uh, same thing. I heard about it probably reading a UFO book when I was 18, 19, or 20 years old. But you would think a Michigan case like this, like people who are interested in weird things that happen in Michigan, it would be forefront of what people are talking about, and Mm -hmm. it wasn't.
0: And yeah, it was from joining a UFO organization that I heard about it, not from any sort of mainstream media source. Yeah, yeah. and
2: I guess what Donald Kehoe was talking about, and uh, he wrote about it, of course, you know, he was one of the the founding minds behind uh, NICAP, but by 1958, he had spoken a little bit about it. What, um, uh, John, can you kind of speak to what Kehoe wrote about with regards to Ken Ross?
3: You know, it's weird because... Kehoe, in writing about Kinross and talking about how, you know, UFOs might be taking our military or attacking our military, it was coming really from that direct standpoint. And then I don't really want to speak to what Kehoe wrote, but I want to speak to Kehoe's effect, which was people then heard his story or read his story in books. And it seemed like people just wrote about Kinross based on only what Kehoe had said. And so you ended up having UFO authors write about it you know in the 70s 80s and 90s but with no one really researching any of the facts i, I talk about at my lectures how people even start to misspell both felix or eugene moncla and and robert wilson's names because they're not even really diving into the facts they're like oh this is a weird cool story that keyhole keyhole told once uh let's just retell it and you know add some it, it got it it's one of those stories right it got weirder as people wrote about it without knowing, without them knowing if they had researched her, researched it, how much weirder it would have actually been that things like Monklo's transmission after he disappears, um, the amount of strangeness. I mean, when I say strangeness, you know, there was an an F-89C Scorpion that also crashed that day in Wisconsin, the same day. And um, that came out of Truax Field in Wisconsin, which is actually where Felix was originally stationed. He came over to Kinross. And so you have, like, on the same day, F-89C Scorpions, one disappearing over Lake Superior and one crashing in Wisconsin. Like, it's just so weird. People didn't have to make stuff up to make it weirder than it was. Mm -hmm. It
0: it was on record in Project Blue Book, too. They did an investigation on it. Blue Book had started the previous year. And so this is an Air Force case, of course, they're going to look into it. But they were fixated on the radar return. Um, Essentially, they said they came out and said, okay, so uh, tell us what happened. And they said, well, there was this thing on the radar, and the plane chased it. And they're like, okay, but what did it look like? And they're like, well, I guess the only people who actually saw it were the pilots, and they weren't around anymore and yeah
2: that and there does seem to be this legendizing that takes place with this story and and i've seen i've seen that kind of circle out and i'm not an expert on ken ross but i've just seen it circle out, like based on what i've read about it uh even weird not weird but a little detail like monclaw actually went by the name gene i think right it wasn't he never went by uh, Felix. Is that a, it's a random random thought? But that's one of the things that I was reading about.
3: Yeah, Gene is how Gene. his friends refer yeah. to him, and in the court testimonies, they call him Gene, Gene. even though it's Eugene.
2: Bill, I understand that John doesn't necessarily want to speak to Kehoe's writing, but the in '58 he said that he had gotten hold of a leaked Air Force document about this, and uh, and one of the the quotes that he said that he reported on is that a radar observer who said that they were there is quote it seems incredible but the blip apparently just swallowed our f89 um is that is does that hold water do you think Kehoe's reporting on it
0: Do well of course you know he is just getting information from his own sources but so are you asking do I think it's possible that a UFO gobbled up pac-man style a plane in midair well, I that's mean,
2: not the initial question, but I do I like mean, that question.
0: <laughs> and it could be, you never know. Um, but uh, they could have collided. It could have been the plane was on top and the thing, the UFO came up or down or whatever and shot off and with their prize. But okay, well, I'm sorry, what was your main question, I guess?
2: Well, I was just if you if you believe that Kehoe did indeed get these leaked Air Force documents.
0: The leaked leak document. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. Uh, there's, there's theres so much shady stuff floating around that um you know it certainly makes for a good story yeah and if it's and if it just even mildly crosses uh, crosses some sort of threshold of possibility maybe float it out there and maybe get some more feedback that uh, can verify it um yeah. and maybe it just sort of hung there like that
2: Brad I I want to start with you on this because one of the other possible X ex- or the official word, was that uh, that Monclaw suffered from vertigo and that this was one of the issues that led to this collision and their, their demise. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: One, One of the stories that the government put out after the fact was that they they'd successfully found this other plane when they were still sticking with the Canadian story. And on the way back, He suffered from a vertigo attack and crashed somewhere a little bit closer to returning to base. Uh, It seems highly unlikely that somebody that's a skilled pilot, such as he was, I believe he had over 120 hours logged in a Scorpion fighter jet. uh, To send somebody like this up if they were known to have attacks of vertigo, just it it, it doesn't seem like something that would happen. Um, Could it have? I don't know. I don't know, but it just, it it doesn't really fit the initial narrative Mm -hmm. when they were originally trying to say it had crashed into a Canadian jet. And then after the fact, they had mentioned that it had intercepted this jet, found out what it was and turned to fly back. And he suffered an attack of vertigo and went into some shallower water, but they still were not able to determine where or recover any type of wreckage.
2: Is there any documentation that has emerged reliable documentation that would suggest that that again, I, from what, from what I've seen, he, uh, Felix Monclaw clocked 811 flying hours in general, like overall, and then 120 in a similar aircraft. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's not nothing. Is there any kind of documentation that he suffered from vertigo prior to this, uh, being part of this official word?
1: I had never heard anything about it outside of this report that the government had put out after the fact. I I was never able to find any other type of documentation that maybe John or Bill have, but that he had any type of health issues going into this. I don't know.
0: Well, I had heard that it, this was just a single incidence of vertigo, not that necessarily he suffered from it. And if I could just jump in before, if maybe, even if John has something additional to say, that Machla's family was so convinced that it wasn't his vertigo that brought him down, but that he had encountered a flying saucer that in um, a memorial they put up to him down in Louisiana, it, his family even put up that he was pursuing a UFO uh, when he... Um, disappeared
2: yeah i was i was going to speak to that but his memorial in louisiana is in loving memory of gene felix eugene monclaw jr first lieutenant united states air force born october 21st 1926 disappeared november 23rd 1953 intercepting an ufo over canadian border as pilot of an f-89 jet plane so the family it does believe that this was uh not vertigo and not flying too low to the water, but that this was something else. Uh, but, but, Tenny, you want to add to the any vertigo thoughts? Have you ever seen anything prior to this?
3: Yeah. So, in all of the documents that are released now, there are multiple re- reports from people working at Kinross at the time and the other pilots that um, when Felix, it was actually lightly snowing. And Felix calls back to Kinross and says that he's going to start flying on controls. He's going to put his shield down, which means that he is not going to be looking anymore at the outside. He's going to be flying completely on Robert's radar controls. So when you say that he's getting an attack of vertigo, vertigo sets in when your vision gets wonky because you're looking at the snow and the movement of the air around you. He couldn't have gotten vertigo in the way that people think about him getting vertigo because he's not looking at anything but the stabilized controls in front of him inside of the plane. So the vertigo theory kind of goes out the window if, if he's flying with his shield down and he's flying on controls.
2: Okay, I did not know that. That's fascinating because yeah, it's perhaps he did suffer from vertigo, but was basically doing something to counteract that. Yes, potentially in that moment. Uh, and as far as the weather goes. I am not an aeronautics expert out of the many things I am not an expert about, but this was at least this jet was touted to be an all weather jet that it could, you know, make its way through this kind of, um, climate, but you know, do do things still happen? Yes. It does seem like things can happen, but along with the vertigo explanation, correct me if I'm wrong, but, his widow received sort of two explanations of the incident, and there was the vertigo, and then the other was that he was flying too low to the lake. Um, uh, or that was one explanation, and the other that it exploded at high altitude. Have you heard these two conflicting reports that were provided to his widow, Bill?
0: Um, I have not. Um, <laughs> if John has something or Brad.
2: Brad, Tenny, dive in. Brad, do you want to go?
1: I I had read that they were given two different reports. One initially was the Vertigo story. Uh, They fought that, and they said not long afterwards, they had changed the story up Uh, when when the government, when the Air Force was putting out multiple stories at that time of what happened and, and just trying to basically wipe it off any type of media publicity and and just normalize the story
3: and i i was going to say so one of the things when you were talking the first part of your question you were talking about the all-weather plane so the f-89c scorpion um had gone through rigorous testing it, it had some initial problems with what they called the aeroelasticity of the wings it has these big pods on the end of its wings and if you go into a dive too quickly what happens is the wings start to bend and they will actually come off and the plane just becomes a bullet um and so all pilots were trained to not go into quick dives to stop this obviously from happening they didn't want the wings coming off of the plane when you were in in flight but uh, another thing that the the Army had, or the, excuse me, the Air Force had pointed to at one time was there is an inlet scoop underneath the main cabin uh, that cools the engine, and it has a screen on it, and in cold temperatures, they found that that screen would ice up. It would stop the inflow of air to the engines and cause the engines to conk out, and so they pointed to that, but again, as more documents were released, we realized that Felix's plane was one that was kind of retrofit. That screen wasn't on there anymore. So there was no chance of that happening. So every time the government tried to put up something, you know, maybe his, in, uh, maybe the inlet scoop iced up, maybe the wings failed, like all of these things fall to the wayside because Felix had been trained, his plane had been retrofit. Um, he was a good pilot. And they were just throwing everything they could at the wall, hoping something would hit. Like Bill said earlier, you know, they the first thing they say is, oh, well, there was a Canadian plane. And immediately the Canadian government comes out and says, it wasn't one of ours. Like, we're not involved in this. You figure your own thing out. And they actually gave the trajectory of where that plane had been headed. And it was going it was it had left Sudbury and it was going to another part of Canada. It would have never gotten close to the Sioux locks.
2: Yeah, put me in the, and maybe Brad, uh, since you live closest to Canada, put me in the mind of the Canadian government as, as far as like if this was some sort of, if there was a collision and it involved one of their guys and one of our guys, it would seem like, okay, they could just own the fact that this is a terrible tragedy and unfortunately these things do happen. Um, or maybe it seems embarrassing and at the time of you know the Cold War, maybe nobody wanted to admit that they were making a mistake. but put me in the mind of like why the Canadians, if this was just an accident, why they wouldn't back up their uh American friends on the other side of the the border
1: I, I find that story very hard to believe that that they would I I, I think if something like this had happened, the Canadian and American forces work together enough over Lake Superior. I know they it, at least nowadays. I don't know back in the 1950s for certain, but they work together a lot. They do a lot of combined drills, different trainings. That I I find it very hard to believe if this wasn't a Canadian plane that had been off course that uh, somehow or another did end up you know in, in a, a chase with this Scorpion fighter jet. That if they would have collided, I, I just can't see how the Canadian government wouldn't have owned that. I, I think just for the, the sake of international relationships, I, I can't see them coming out and denying it. And again, to go back to uh, my former statement, as, as far as the wreckage would be uh, from two of these jets hitting each other, you would have something that would have floated up. I mean, this was not that far. It was roughly 70 miles off the Keweenaw Peninsula. And if you look at the way the weight goes from the freighter that it drifts, you know, things will drift in, wreckage will drift in. You would have had some type of visual evidence if, if you were searching heavily in that area. And, and I just find that very hard to believe that that's what happened.
2: So uh, is it is it accurate that in 1968 uh, there were claims that aircraft parts were found near the eastern shore of Lake Superior, I believe, October 1968. And some people tried to pin that on uh, it being wreckage, finally finally showing up from this F-89. Have, you, have any of you heard that?
1: I've heard that as a rumor, but I've never seen anything that substantiated those claims, and I've never heard of anybody officially coming out and reporting that they had recovered wreckage from it.
3: Tenny, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, you know it's 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 strange because Ken Ross, even though it's not a well-known case, it's like people stumble into it every couple decades and start to claim that they have recovered wreckage. This happened, I think, in the early two thousands. Yeah. A group showed up and started showing. Oh, we found wreckage on the bottom of the lake, and uh, no one has ever found any wreckage.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. So the- I okay. want to. I want to dive
2: into that. Uh, a little bit more, pardon the pun. Um, in 2006, there was this organization that emerges, the Great Lakes Dive Company. And Bill, uh, why don't you walk us through this, what strange chapter that, that unfolded in 2006?
0: Okay, so in August of 2006, these images popped out on the internet. Um, again, you were right, the Great Lakes Dive Company was the claimed name of the the group and the person that was their spokesperson um, called himself uh, Alex uh, Jimenez. And he had um, said that they had the the wreckage of not only the the fighter, but also of the UFO um, down at the bottom of Lake Superior. They were claiming salvage rights, so they didn't wanna give out too many details about their operation, which was according to him, I think it was Adam Jimenez, if I said Alex, but whatever. And so they said that um, if people wanted to hear more about it, um, that they were going to put out a DVD the next year and that everybody could then watch um, this DVD and find out about the wreckage that they, they brought up. And the problem with um this situation, because they were hoaxers, um, there were several groups very active at the time, including Michigan MUFON. We weren't just going to sit around and wait until the following year for a DVD. MUFON was all over this. Uh, uh, Linda Moulton independently was all over this. Other investigators were all over this and it was in less than two weeks. It was determined there is no Anna Jimenez. There is no Great Lakes Dive Company and the story went away. Yeah. The, so
2: the, what I recall is that there were, there i believe even reporters trying to uh, suss this out that they were interested enough that they started poking around the web presence even from this great lakes dive company just kind of went offline uh, rather quickly is my understanding is it maybe i'm just um too quick to look in the direction of like conspiracies uh i don't think i am but it just strikes me as so peculiar bill you just think it was some hoaxers
0: yeah, well, there's there's a little bit more. Um, so the production company that was going to put out this DVD was, coincidentally, the same production company that put out Alien Autopsy. Uh, so not off to a good start there either. But, yeah, you know, I think that, you know, in today's modern world, they would have put it out on YouTube or whatever. Um, and they just didn't know the environment in which they were bringing out their hoax in that there were dedicated, educated, uh, motivated investigators that would jump all over any um, big UFO story. And, you know, they, I mean, it fell apart instantly like a house of cards.
2: Yeah. Uh, John Tenney or Brad Blair, do you have anything more to add about this uh, Great Lakes Dive Company? Actually, let me start with Brad, since, again, you were kind of living in the area at the time.
1: Yeah, I, I had a friend that was working with the, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Society. And, of course, they this sent up some red flags with them. And they had no idea who this Great Lakes Dive Company was. And this is an outfit that's out searching. They're, they're very professional. They run the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum out at Whitefish Point. They're, they're out nonstop looking for undiscovered shipwrecks in anomalies at the bottom of the lakes. And they had no clue who this outfit was. So it, it set up some red flags with them. And there, there was a lot of doubt cast on a local level. Uh, and, and I don't know how deeply they dug into it because a, as Bill said, it they disappeared so fast when they started getting called out. And when people started digging into their backgrounds, uh, it, it was a non-existent outfit.
2: Yeah, and you're talking about an organization that uh, the, once again, what's the name of the organization, the person you know?
1: The Great Lake Shipwreck Society.
2: And and this is a, a group that the, with the number, the sheer number of ships that have gone down mm-hmm. and they're constantly looking and not finding things. I mean, they're finding some things, but there's a lot that they have not found. Right. For this other outfit to show up out of nowhere and be like, hey, look, here is the image. Just seems uh, a little convenient.
1: Yeah. It, it, it was something that it, if this was a reputable organization that had been in there and, and had been working in the Great Lakes, as their name would um, <laughs> kind of give, uh, yeah, that that would have been uh, one thing. But for somebody like this, that just claimed to have started up and had this Great Lakes Dive Company. And lo and behold, right after they get going, they find this fighter jet and the remains of whatever it was that it collided with uh, seemed very suspicious.
2: John, do you want to, do you have anything you can add to that That particular chapter
3: of this, this Great Lakes Dive Company? Yeah, I, I just remember when it kind of hit the proto-internet, the 2006 internet, and the thing that immediately sent up a red flag for me, uh, knowing about this case and researching this case, mm-hmm. the kind of Photoshopped image that they were shopping around of their underwater recovery looked like a plane on the bottom of the lake. And I was like, oh, that could not actually be it because if you hit the water at a few hundred miles an hour like it's not going to still have its wings attached it's not going to be just setting gently on the bottom and so yeah like bill said like i remember everybody the ufo community going into action and trying to like suss out what was going on with this i think the difficulty with me when i think reflect back on it is like it was an amazing moment because the ufo community like worked together to figure out if something was a hoax and now i feel like we're in an era where if someone would present this same type of information now it would be completely readily accepted no one would look into it no one would try and debunk it no one would care as a matter of fact You know, if people look up the Ken Ross case now, they're still going to stumble into websites that talk about, oh, the wreckage was recovered from this dive company in Michigan.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Is this, where do you think that this fits in? Let me rephrase that. I think there's a lot of people that if they're hearing about this story, they might be responding with, well, why don't we just have countless other reports of u.s uh air force craft jets that are just you know disappearing like this or commercial airlines or things of this nature so bill why don't you kind of answer that you know what how does this fit within some other cases are there other cases that you think okay ken ross and then also here's two other that that i would like to mention
0: okay well if uh Um, If this uh, fits along that line, certainly Bruce McAbee, who for many years was MUFON's photo video investigator, um, he had uh, come across uh, rumors that he believed were true, that a case very similar to this happened on the northeast coast of Japan in the spring of 1959. Um, He was a naval officer himself back in the day, he spoke to uh, Navy people and they said, you know, as an aside, you know, on on the side, you know, I can share with you that this thing had, you know, this was Kinross was not the only time where the US military scrambled a jet against an unknown object in the sky, and only to have the plane disappear. So that was, there was certainly another one where that was the case. And I know there was a gentleman in Australia, um, it was a Tasmanian Sea, this was October 21st, 1978, uh, Frederick Valentich is is uh, I think how he's pro- his name was pronounced, and similar thing, his plane went up, um, they, there was an unknown object, his plane, the object, same place, same time, also disappeared. So yeah. those are a couple more instances of pretty much exactly the same thing happening, making you wonder um, how many times does this actually happen? And we never hear about it. We hear about pilots going down for reasons such as vertigo, let's say.
2: The, the Northwest Orient Airlines flight 2501, this was 1950. It, it seems similarly mysterious to me. Does that kind of, of 1950 similar region three years prior to Ken Ross does that fit within this kind of mythology do you think does anyone think uh Brad
1: my understanding on that was when when that flight went down some police officers that have been patrolling along the lakefront the same time that that happened did report some type of red glowing objects coming out of the water in the area they think it went down in uh, the one thing with that wreck is they did recover clothing. They recovered items that belonged to some of the passengers and, and there was some wreckage that was recovered from it. So we know it did, or we believe it did go down somewhere in the lake.
3: Uh, yeah.
1: we just don't know where.
2: Okay. John, is there any other kind of cases that when you think of Ken Ross, you, uh, you have a
3: companion, a, a double feature case? <laughs> I mean, I really think, well, I always tell people I got interested in Ross because when I discovered a Michigan case, I got really interested in it. But the kind of underlying motivations of that too is like I've always been as a UFO kid and someone who read books growing up about UFOs like Flight 19 out of Florida. You know, you have these torpedo bombers that take off from Florida and disappear that have never been recovered. And that always sits in the back of my mind, too. And so when I heard a story about something similar happening in Michigan, um, that's the one that I I, I, that always kinds of pops into my head. You know, that was in 45. But. Yeah. And of course, made famous by the movie Close Encounters. That's where the the flight 19, the planes come back in the Mm -hmm. desert.
2: How do you. Well. Bill, what do you think happened?
0: Kinross. Um, Kinross? um, yeah, I mean the the object on the radar. Uh, there are multiple witnesses to it. It flew at a speed that uh, something shouldn't have um, back then, and the uh, pilots, you know, to say that they they the UFO absconded with the 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 plane, I don't know. You know, on one hand, it is a absolutely ludicrous thing to say on the other hand how bizarre is it that 70 years later we have no wreckage um yeah. so something something nearly impossible to believe happened that day and um in the ufo field having seen all sorts of really strange stories um if somebody told me yeah this happened the ufo took off with the plane I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's another one for the high strangeness files. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I've seen so much that uh I, I don't doubt anymore that something as bizarre as that could have possibly happened.
1: One thing that really interests me on this case is the trajectory, the where the UFO was heading towards. It was out over Lake Superior, heading towards the direction of Isle Royal which has all kinds of strangers wrapped around it. It was a very sacred area to the Native Americans. It's also right off Isle Royale that we found on Google Imaging, uh, this Lake Superior anomaly. It's two miles by three miles, roughly 500 feet below the water with uniform walls that are about 250 feet high. In this area, you can go back and there were reports of strange creatures in the Native American tribes before the Europeans ever arrived. There was what one voyager described as a mermaid, uh, ben on saint germain back in the 1780s. He went in front of a Canadian court and he wanted a deposition taken that he saw a mermaid off of this same area, Pie Island, right off of Isle Royale very near where this Lake Superior Anomaly is. And some of the different ideas on the anomaly, there there have been people that have said it was some type of a volcanic formation. Uh, But one of the wilder ones is that it was a USO base. And that there have been strange objects seen coming up from this area of the lake. And this is the exact area that this craft was heading towards.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. This is the uh, so-called uh, Great Lake Stonehenge, correct? No,
1: no. That's over in Lake Michigan. This is Lake Superior Anomaly. It's it, it's underwater roughly 500 feet, and it's almost a triangular shape with an indentation, but it's two miles long by three miles wide, and it's just far enough down that it would take quite a bit of money with somebody with... Uh, some type of either a sub or a remote-operated vehicle to go down and actually explore this. It's not something you could just go and dive down to. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of controversy around this area, but it's right in this location that we've had a lot of UFO sightings, uh, possible shipwrecks that have never been discovered that were last seen in this region. So there's a lot of strangeness right around that area, and it, it just strikes me as odd that that was exactly where this craft was heading towards when it merged with the fighter jet.
2: The follow-up question I would ask is like, if that was, if that's the case, well, why Michigan, why Michigan as a location for a potential USO, uh, base, uh, why would, why would the extraterrestrials or whatever is out there want to take up residency in such cold waters? (laughs) Why not hang out? Why not hang out where it's a little bit warmer?
1: Well, you you can't get to it easily, for one thing. It's it's not easily explorable, even today with today's technology. Another interesting fact from that area is Isle Royale and the Keweenaw Peninsula, right off of that, were very rich, very pure copper deposits. And to this day, there's over 500,000 tons of copper that have been taken out of that area that we can't account for. They can't be found anywhere in the U.S., There are some theories that ancient Minoans came over and mined the area and took this back, but you think how many trips in one of these smaller craft that they would have had to make across the ocean in those days to account for half a million tons of copper. Is there something in the purity of the copper that possibly some type of extraterrestrial race may be able to use in their technology and it's it's total speculation, but. It's interesting that this is located so close to where these ancient mines are that we still can't account for what happened to all the minerals that were taken over them.
2: Yeah. John Tenny, do you want to add to that as far as any theories about what did happen with Ken Ross or, you know, even why this location?
3: Well, just to start on strange stuff, because you know I love weird stuff too, and I love when when people get really weird with it. Uh there's actually from uh point uh port bolster in canada ontario up through the sioux in the days leading up to the kinross disappearance uh reported in the newspapers people can go on newspapers.com and whatever and look it up there were lake monster sightings uh in the days leading up to the kinross disappearance which i always again when i say like you don't have to make up weird stuff just look at the newspaper reports of what was happening at the time and you'll find weird stuff happening um you know I talked to in the in the late 90s I I contacted some of the surviving members of the team who had been at Kinross at the at the time they were very hesitant to talk about the case Um, every single one of them uh, at some point said to me in one way or another just just accept the fact that he crashed we have and like that was kind of their stock response and it you know, I talked to probably seven different officers who had served at the time, and they all said very, very similar things as if they'd been coached to say the same thing over and over again. Um, I think the thing to me is, you know, when I do lectures about this or when I hear people talk about it or when we revisited it, like – this is, again, this is a situation, we are America, and we have this history of saying and proclaiming that we support our military and our troops and our veterans, right? And you have a case where two men doing their duty serving America uh, vanished and have never been found, and no one cares about that. They're just gone. And we move on to what, the next thing? Like, that's what outrages me the most, is the fact that, you know, if you, if you really want to champion uh, someone, you're you're supposed to champion the voiceless, right? You're supposed to be the voice for the voiceless. And Felix and Robert are two of those people that need a voice.
2: Yeah. And again, Felix Eugene Monclaw, Robert L. Wilson, two people that lived lives, had families, disappeared, and then became just sort of footnotes of, well, this thing happened and just accept it it's quite it's quite unsettling in that regard and it's we i had an audience uh submitted question from chris and her question was any speculation on what would be discovered if additional files on this incident were to be declassified now that congress is declassifying other uap reports and it's it's certainly a solid question a valid question however i must admit some cynicism about anything actually being declassified or revealed to us. Is there, John, I mean, respond first, then go around the board. But is do you think anything actually would be declassified or revealed about this case?
3: I think that, I mean, Brad and Bill know my story with getting these FOIA documents that I got. And I was very securitous and kind of uh, screwed the government into giving me everything that they had. And so I think we do have everything that they had. They, they, the way that I got those documents, you know, I, I FOIA'd the Department of Energy, which wasn't involved at all with Kinross, And they sent, this is the short story. And they told me they had no documents. And so I said, well, you're named in those documents. And so the Department of Energy FOIA'd uh, the Air Force for all of their documents. And then when the department of energy got them they said look we've looked through these 536 pages of documents and we're not named anywhere in them we don't have anything to send you and i told them well my foia documentation is for all of the documents you currently have in possession or will come into possession of and you just told me you have 536 documents so i expect them in the mail and a week later i got 536 documents so i really think that we have everything that they have but it's still a very small number of researchers including myself who have gone through all 536 documents looking for those inconsistencies in the story and you know i if anybody wants them i can send them to you it's just a scanning 536 pages of documents doesn't make my brain feel great
0: it's on the black vault still though right
3: uh, I do believe that, but I don't think, you know, it's strange because John Greenwald with the blackvault.com I don't think that he has put all 536 up because he considered some of them to be copies because there do seem there do seem to be repetitive copies of some of the incident and accident reports. But upon further examination, you'll see where typos have been made and corrected in those documents. And so I think the all of the documents should be looked at. And I don't think John has those on Black Vault.
2: Another question that I think is worth bringing up that was submitted is there's a special unit in the Air Force that does fallen soldier recovery, usually focusing on war areas, but also home cases, too. Last year, they recovered 5,000 bodies, mostly from Vietnam. But this would not, that should fall under that, but doesn't seem to be. It's, you know,
1: was, is was there any remedy to that? Inside? Brad, yeah, with, without discovering any wreckage officially, or or having a clear idea of where the wreckage may be, I I don't know how they would really even advance that case.
2: Right. So on the 70th anniversary of the Ken Ross incident, what what would you like to see moving forward overall? Be it, I mean maybe more transparency, maybe there's not any further transparency to acquire. Is it talking about it more? Is it more people tackling this case and trying to research it? Is it getting money in the water to uh, try to look for this stuff? So moving forward, what legacy would you like this to have? What attention, Bill Konkolesky?
0: Yeah, well we're encountering sort of a song and dance at the moment um within congress and uh department of defense where we have this sort of slow drip disclosure that really hasn't been making much progress i think what we need are more um, aggressive whistleblowers um like a david grush or and others that um, really stir things up that uh, sort of disrupt the game and so that people that are on the sidelines Who've been waiting for their opportunity to tell their story. Um, whether whatever happens from this grush um, you know, series of events that's going on right now and the investigations around them. Um, I, I think more people that have had these types of uh um things uh happen in their military careers that they were told to keep secret, you know, blow that whistle and have other people come out and tell their stories too. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Brad Blair, moving forward, what what would you like to see uh, as it relates to this case?
1: I I would love to see it get a little more publicity, especially hitting a milestone like the 70th year. Um, As I said, I I grew up, this happened in my backyard, and I knew nothing of this until I got into later high school early college years. So I, I really think it's just been brushed under the covers. Uh, and, and I think any case like this where you have American military members or any American citizens that have went missing or lost their lives, as we assume happened uh, with Moncla and Wilson, you, you would like to see them at least get the respect they deserve and not go out and try and claim things along the lines of the vertigo explanation. You know, that, that to me is just insulting to the families. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, it is. It's very insulting, and it's incredibly insensitive to suggest that these guys that dedicated their life to the country, uh, the security of the country, and had families that it was just vertigo. It was just something, uh, just simple that claimed their lives. But, uh, John Tenney, moving forward, what would you like to happen as uh, in the wake of this 70th anniversary?
3: Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, there's a part of me, like, obviously that wants this case to have more recognition and be given kind of more honor since there was the loss of two servicemen in it. Uh, I mean, Felix's, uh, memorial down in new Orleans is great. Um, I, I would love to see something actually on, I mean, it's Kinross is still a working air air base. It's not an, an air force base anymore. It's a, it's commercial air airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to see something there uh, in recognition of them or somewhere, that you know, people in Michigan that's happened in Michigan. Like it's, it's great that Felix is recognized in his hometown. I should hope he would be. Um, but I think more than anything, you know, talking about, Hearing Bill say, you know, there needs to be whistle, whistleblowers. I think one of the things you know, I said earlier about being the voice for the voiceless, I also hope that this case could inspire people to be the voice for themselves. Like if you have a weird experience, if you see a UFO, if you have uh, someone in your history or your family who's, you know, scared of telling it to be able to get them to tell that story. So the voices can be heard at some time because there are so many stories that go unaccounted for that get caught up in obfuscation and over time just disappear and fall off the cliff of history like saving these voices and allowing all of these voices to be heard people need to talk to each other and tell their stories yeah
2: and i i would argue that through the work each of you are doing hopefully that stigma can be removed slowly though it may be and finally speaking of your work john tenney how can people follow you
3: support what you do uh, all of my social accounts are John E. L. Tenney. Um, I don't even know what social accounts people use anymore. So just John E. L. Tenney. Google that or John Tenney Weirdo. And I have a podcast called What's Up Weirdo that releases almost every week that people can listen to, which is really silly, and uh, I I think it's funny.
2: <laughs> it's funny. I would I would co sign with that statement. Uh, Brad Blair.
1: Yeah, just on, on Facebook and Twitter, or X as it's called now, or the the two social accounts I probably check more than anything. Uh, we also have UpernaturalHaunts.com that you can check in on our books. And uh, Tim Ellis and I co-host the Creaking Door Paranormal Radio podcast, which uh, we've kind of had to shelve over the summer months. We're just getting ready to relaunch it now into the winter. So... You can watch for that any place you get your podcasts. Should be out next month with a return episode.
2: And Michigan Paracon, new announcements and uh, updates are slowly rolling out for but very 2024. slowly.
1: Once we get past spooky season, we'll kick in heavier to that. But MIParacon.com and, again, on social media, we're out there all over the place. Facebook and Twitter get updated the quickest.
2: Very good. Bill Konkolesky.
1: Yeah, I uh, do
0: about uh, 30 uh, local speaking gigs a year, and I always uh, post them on Facebook. And so that's, uh, I view social media as a necessary evil, and I, I just went all in on Facebook. But, of course, being um, a Michigan MUFON state director here, I if you can go to mimufon.org to attend our meetings either in person, if you're in Michigan, or some of the meetings that we have on Zoom, as well. Um, I'm not sure when this will air, but our next uh, special guest speaker is, in fact, John Tenney talking about Kinross. So if you can make it out, do so.
2: I like it. And I am Aaron Sagers and my guests are John Tenney, Brad Blair and Bill Konkoleski. And today we've been talking about the Kinross incident, 70th anniversary. And once again, even though this is a story of weirdness, high strangeness. Let's remember the people that were lost as a result of this, as we believe is Felix Eugene Monclaw and Robert L. Wilson. And that is it for this episode of Talking Strange. Until next time, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash TV and youtube.com slash den of us and please follow at talk strange pod on twitter and at aaron sagers on twitter instagram and patreon for more paranormal pop culture content